Hope you have your Bibles with you and that you will turn in them to Psalm 100. You may remember that this summer we're not having our kids' classes during the sermon time, and so our children's ministry director, Lisa, has provided some sheets for the children. They're on the back table there if you need one. It's back there. There are plenty of them, so grab one, take some notes, do some coloring, if that would help you follow along as a younger one in our midst. It's page 500 in the Bibles that are provided for you in our chairs, and uh, if one would serve you to take home and keep, we would be happy for you to do that. Uh, can you go back to my, oh, there it is. Can you go back to my original slide, please? I bumped it on the remote in my phone. Oh, there it is. There it is. In the 1500s, the Christian church was in great turmoil. The Roman Catholic church was, it seemed, sort of under attack Christians like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin were teaching and preaching that the Catholics had gotten a lot of things wrong. If you're familiar with the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, you might be thinking about what they had to say primarily about salvation being by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone and about how uh, scripture is the final teaching authority, not the church, and about how religion is all about the glory of God, not about man-centered ritual. But there was something else that was actually a big part of the Reformation that continues to this day, and I think it pertains to Psalm 100. In Geneva, Switzerland, an important and impactful book was completed in 1562 called the Genevan Psalter. It was a songbook produced for the purpose of congregational singing. Because you see, the Reformers also taught that singing as a congregation in the vernacular of the people in that place was a vital aspect of Christian life that the Catholic Church had neglected. And in that songbook, in the Genevan Psalter, were some brand new melodies and tunes set to texts from the Psalms. And one of those tunes has stood the test, that has stood the test of time is the tune known today as Old 100th. Perhaps you've heard of it. This tune was first used actually to sing a, a French translation of the words from Psalm 134, but soon that tune was sung to Psalm 100, and it has been connected to it ever since. In our day, a hymn that a lot of people refer to as Old 100th is all people that on earth do dwell, and you see on your order of worship, we're going to actually sing that in a few minutes. But that tune is most commonly known also today as the tune for what we think of as the doxology, in which Christians have sung for hundreds and even thousands of years, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below, praise him above, you heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But this timeless and famous tune has its roots in the words of Psalm 100, our text for today. I'd like to read it again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. 
for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. These are the words of the Lord. Psalm 100 is the final of the Malak Psalms. Uh, talked about this a little bit last week with Psalm 99. This group of psalms from Psalm 93 to Psalm 100, where all the earth is called to praise the Lord. And I think Psalm 100 is a fitting climax of these Malak psalms, which with each of them seeming to get closer and closer and closer into the presence of Yahweh and then building until this final one where everyone, including Gentiles, is invited into God's presence with loud joy and thanksgiving. And as I look through Psalm 100, I count seven commands imperative language throughout this psalm. In other words, these calls, these commands in Psalm 100 are not optional. The reader is responsible to obey these commands. We have to do it in order to obey God. And remember, Psalm 100's author is doing the physical act of writing down these words in Hebrew thousands of years ago. But there's something else happening here that we have to remember, and it's important for us to remember. Every time we come to any portion of Scripture, it's what theologians and biblical scholars call the doctrine of inspiration. And what that means simply is that God sovereignly carried along the biblical authors to say what he wanted them to say. And that's important to note here because it means that what's actually happening here in Psalm 100 is the king of the universe giving these calls, these commands, through a human-inspired author. Now, look with me at the slide that was up there accidentally a moment ago where we see the structure of this psalm and these commands as I understand it. There are these three commands and you've got this central command, then three more commands, and then the reason for all of these commands together. Do you see that as you even look through the psalm and these simple five verses? I think you can see that each of these commands in the first and second group also have a corresponding command to the other group. They have these, these first three commands have some thematic similarities. The second three commands also have their own thematic similarities. If you just glance your eyes over them, you'll see joyfulness as part of the theme in these first three commands. And you see thankfulness uh, showing up in the second three. And there's the, then there's this command in the middle to know God. And so what you have here is sort of a 1A, 1B, 1C, then the center, then 2C, 2B, 2A, and then the reason for all of it. Do you see what I mean? I think that's, the, that's a helpful way to look at the psalm. I think that's the structure of it. And understanding that structure actually helps us understand its message. It's beautiful, it's artistic, it's poetic, but it's also purposeful. So let's go back to the beginning now and look at these calls of the psalm and see what God's word is teaching us about him and about our place and relationship to him and how we should respond. The first call is a call to joyful praise. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Here we have perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament. Christians for centuries and millennia have loved to reference this whole psalm and this verse in particular as a call to worship in corporate gatherings of God's people as well as in private times of worship and devotion and praise. 
And I believe verse 1 here sets the stage for the rest of the psalm. It sort of kicks off the whole thing with the first of these seven calls, and I think it frames the first three in this theme of joyfulness. Now, as much as people have often enjoyed using this verse as a kind of humorous excuse for off-key singing, that is not actually what the psalmist originally meant. Not at all, in fact. Sometimes people say, well, I don't sound very good when I sing, but hey, it says make a joyful noise, right? It doesn't say make a a beautiful harmonic blending sound. It says make a joyful noise. And while certainly there is some truth there, what the psalmist is calling for here is a triumphant, confident, and loud shout. That's what he's talking about. Verse 1 isn't even calling for a song at all. That comes in verse 2. The Hebrew verb verb that's translated in your ESV, if you have an ESV in front of you, joyful noise, is actually just one Hebrew word. And it does describe vocalization, but it's not necessarily a vocalization in song. Rather, it's a word that has to do with shouting, with confidence, with exuberance. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Joshua chapter 6 to describe a war cry. And the word joyful in your ESV, if you're using an ESV, is part of the translation of that one word. It's not its own word. It's not like there's two Hebrew words, one for joyful and one for noise. No, it's this one word that's translated for us, joyful noise. But if you have a CSB, by chance, in front of you, you'll see that it says, shout triumphantly to the Lord. The NIV says, shout for joy. And so what the Hebrew means is this festal shout akin to a battle cry. So however you slice it, if you think this call for a joyful noise is an allowance for any old sound coming out of your mouth, as long as it's joyful, that would be incorrect. Obviously, it is the heart that matters most. But explicitly, undeniably, and clearly in the text, what is called for here is volume. It calls for a shout. It's talking about something akin to a war cry, not a monotone, lifeless droning. Reminds me of a moment towards the end of the Lord of the Rings series where King Aragorn is seeking to inject courage into the hearts of an outnumbered group of soldiers on the precipice of battle. And he says this line that will be familiar to some of you. My brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. This day we fight. It's a war cry like this. It's a cry for confidence, a cry for courage, a cry for strength. That's what verse 1 is calling for. It's a joyful noise, but it is not merely a pleasant sound like the clinging of silverware and cheery laughter and conversation you might hear at a restaurant. No, it's a festal shout. It's a battle cry. So call number one is a call for joyful praise. 
The second call is a call for joyful worship. And obviously you can see these first two calls are related. It's a joyful noise. It's a confident and undaunted battle cry in verse 1. But now verse 2 is definitely calling for happiness and gladness and joy. Now, when we come to a verse like this, we have to be careful to understand what it is actually saying. It says, serve the Lord with gladness, right there at the beginning of verse 2. And we have to make sure that we also understand what it's not saying. Because it is not true that God's people are going to be always feeling happy. Or glad, to use the word in front of me here. I mean, you haven't been glad when painful trials have come into your life. I certainly have not been glad when death and sickness and sorrow has entered my life. And so verse 2 is not this command for the people of God to always just be happy, but it is saying that something specific ought to be done with gladness. You see it? Service. Serve the Lord with gladness. You might have a translation that actually says worship instead of serve. And that's because the translation from Hebrew to English can be quite challenging. There's various nuances between one language and another. And in Hebrew, the verb here is actually more of a combination of two ideas of worship and service. Service and worship. Kind of a blurry mixture. And so both versions are right. It is here in verse 2 a call to worship and service. A call to service and worship. The fact is, when it comes to the people of God and their relationship with Him, service and worship are closely intertwined, aren't they? Because for the people of God, worship is an act of service. And serving in any way is an act of worship. I mean, think about it. What is it that's at the heart of worship? Whatever it is you're worshiping. It's kind of this ascribing or acknowledging or affirming or in some way living out and pointing to the fact that your object of worship is worthy. Worthy of your time, worthy of your praise, worthy of your devotion, worthy of your glory. And so when you serve the Lord in any capacity, you're worshiping him because you're saying this God that I serve is worthy of my service, worthy of my time, worthy of my money, worthy of my gifts and talents. And when you're in a setting like this, where worship is more corporate or privately in your quiet time with the Lord in prayer and in his word, these things are service just as much as they are worship, because it is a life of worship that is now the sacrifice or the service that we now offer to the Lord, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. And that's the point. What we have here in Psalm 100, verse 2, is this call to a life of worship and service. Those two concepts are so intertwined that there isn't that much of a difference, though there certainly are nuances to them both. And how does Psalm 100 say this life of worship, this life of service is to be characterized? It's to be characterized by gladness. 
Because it's a joy to serve the Lord. It's a privilege. It's an honor to have been transformed from a rebel and an enemy to a servant, to a messenger, to an ambassador, to even a vice regent of this king. And so to serve him is not always easy. It does not always feel good. And you're not always going to be happy every moment of the, along the way. But it does, or at least it should, bring great joy to your heart. The third call is a call to joyful entrance. The second part of verse 2, come into his presence with singing. Or come before him, you might see in a version in front of you. And so once again, we have to remember the original context in which this was said. We read Psalm 100 with our New Testament sensibilities, and most of us in this room probably as believers in Jesus and his work on the cross and risen from the dead. But the original readers and singers of this poem did not have that in mind because it hadn't happened yet. Certainly they would have hoped for the salvation of the Lord that would come in the future, but you know what I mean. They weren't looking back at a finished work on the cross and empty tomb like we do. And so the context in which this call or this command was originally written was one where coming into the presence of the Lord was a big ordeal. The only way you could enter into his presence was through the covenant relationship that God had ordained and himself initiated. And for those who were not in a covenant relationship with God, to come into his presence would result in death. Because a relationship with this king is necessary in order to approach him. But that's where some good news comes in here. Because when the king transforms your relationship by adopting you into his covenant family, no longer is his presence a place of fear and dread. It's a place of delight. It's a place of what, according to verse 2? Singing. You see that? Joyful songs accompany our presence, our entrance into his presence. And so here is where Psalm 100 does give us a command to sing. The joyful noise in verse 1 certainly can include a song for sure, but this is explicit. It is a call, it is an invitation that is also a command to come into the presence of God with a joyful song. It's a command to be a person who sings about their relationship with God in the presence of God and to God. And so here we have these first three calls in these first two verses that I'm seeing as the first section of this psalm. These three calls of the psalm to worshipers all over the world. Remember in verse 1 it says all the earth and what's being commanded and called is entrance into his presence. A life of worship. Acts of praise. All of them under the umbrella of being characterized by joy. And friends, as I think about this reality of a call to joyful entrance, joyful worship, joyful praise, I think we need this word. Joy is a big, big deal. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit in the New Testament too, isn't it? And in many Christian churches and in many Christians, 
Joy is lacking. In the life of the body of Christ, what is often seen instead of joy is this kind of reserved, half-hearted, perfunctory, kind of like you just have to go through the motions, unfeeling and even dispassionate performance of a ritual life of worship rather than a real life of worship. I mean, do you know what I mean? You see what I'm getting at? And please be assured, I am not talking about faking happiness. We do not need fakers in the church. We do not need people who act one way outside a corporate gathering and another way during the gathering. That's, that's hypocrisy. Please do not hear from Psalm 100 that serve the Lord with gladness means pretend to be joyful so it seems like you're obeying the Bible. But if Psalm 100's call to be joyful in praise giving and joyful in a life of worshipful service and joyful in coming into his presence, if it means anything, it means what it says. It means that one of the commands given to the people of God is a command to be joyful in their relationship with him. And listen, I just want to say, I want to be real with you guys. I know that for all of us, it has been a hard couple of years for many different reasons in all of our lives, some of them in common, but some of them not. I really do get it. I have felt it just like you in my own, in my own life. The world is different than it used to be. Churches have divided. Some friendships have broken. Workplaces have changed. Loved ones have died. We're exhausted from political strife. We're exhausted from the drama of the pandemic. We're exhausted about all these cultural shifts happening around us. We can't keep up with them. We've got to figure out the talking points to be a good witness and what I'm supposed to watch out for and what I've got to pay attention to. It's exhausting. It's draining. But friends, even when things are hard, like they are, you can be joyful. Being joyful isn't the same as feeling good. You can be joyful even when things don't feel good. You can have joy in your heart when you're simultaneously agonizing over a trial in your life. You know why? Because as the people of God, no matter what happens in this life, your eternal life is secure because of your relationship with God. School isn't going well. Work stresses you out. Your family's got problems. The bills are tight. Sickness and disease is wearing you down. Political problems are freaking you out. There are conflicts to deal with, but praise God, Jesus has saved you. That's cause for joy. That's cause for big time joy. And many times having a joyful heart or pursuing a joyful heart requires faith. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it is easy to just feel really great about what's going on. But when you can't see something worth being happy about or feeling good about, by faith, you can know that your biggest need is already met, your biggest problem is already dealt with, and anything else that's coming down the pipe that you don't even know about is already dealt with and in the hands of the one who saved you. Do a little exercise with me here. It's going to sound silly. Bear with me. 
What do you think aliens would think if they observed different events going on on a Sunday in Denver? One alien arrives at Coors Field today where Brian's beloved pirates are taking on the Rockies. The aliens see a crowd united in their delight around the purpose and mission of their team to beat Brian's pirates. They're praising them. They're cheering with delight when something good happens. They're groaning together when something bad happens. Perhaps another alien comes back in the fall and sees the same kind of thing at the Broncos Stadium. Maybe another alien looks down at Red Rocks during a concert, and they see people with their hands in the air. They're singing along with the band on stage. They hear cheers and squeals of delight when a certain song comes on or even when it ends because they want more. And then an alien walks into a church, maybe even this church. What would that alien find? Would he find the same kind of thing? People united in their delight around the purpose and mission of their team, groaning when something bad happens together, shouting for joy when something good happens together. Or do they find yawns, distracted glances at notifications on a phone, reserved voices barely mumbling the words we just sang, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. I mean, Redeemer Bible Church, don't you think that of all people and of all things, who we are and what we do as the body of Christ, whether in corporate worship or in a prayer gathering on the first Sunday of the month or in your fellowship group meetings that happen in the middle of the week or a Bible study or a kid's class or whatever else that we're doing here in life in the body is the thing to be most excited about? And so my friends, sing praise to God in corporate worship with joy in your heart. And yes, let it come out like a battle cry. Don't be afraid of how you sound. And if you're the only one doing it, good for you. Everybody else will follow your God-honoring lead. Lift your head. Raise your hands if you can. And sing And also, when it comes to this serving the Lord with gladness business, remember, my friends, the whole reason you exist is to serve and worship and honor and glorify the King of the universe and Lord of Lords who made you. And so when there's an opportunity to serve in some way in this church, and you know, I'm pretty sure, as well as I do, there are always needs there's always a need for another children's teacher or nursery worker or cleaning team helper or musician or whatever else might be going on. When you're aware even of a neighbor or a friend or a family member or a family who's not related to you whom you can help or when the alarm goes off in the morning and it's time to spend some time with the Lord in worship, you can be glad to do those things. And you ought to be glad to do those things because to do those things is to engage in the very reason that you're alive, to worship and serve the king. So don't shy away from serving. And as the scripture explicitly says, do not neglect gathering for worship, for prayer, for fellowship. As scripture says, as is the habit of some, 
but rather serve the Lord with gladness. And friends, I know so many of you know exactly what this feels like, to come alongside someone with a need. No one else even knows about it. You're just helping this person, and it brings joy to your heart as you do it. You know what it's like to serve even in public and the joy that can come from whether it's serving in a, a teaching situation with the children or on the music team or whatever it is. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now we come to the central call of the whole thing, call number four, which is the one right in the middle of it all. It's a call to know God relationally. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are the, His people, the sheep of His pasture. This is a call to know something. Right there in verse 3, the first word, know something. But that call to know something is more than just adding intellectual data. It's, it's a call to know something experientially. In fact, it's a call to know not just something, but someone experientially and relationally. Verse 3 calls its readers and singers to know that Yahweh is God, that he is the one true God, that he is the creator, that he is the one who made us, and that since he made us, we belong to him. But not only do we belong to him, he belongs to us as our shepherd. And now here is, is part of why I think understanding this structure of Psalm 100 is so important. This call to know comes after that first group of three calls to praise and worship and entrance. And it also comes before the second group of calls to entrance and worship and praise. And so it's at the heart of this whole thing. It's right between those two somewhat parallel commands. It is the central call. It's the heart of it. Why? Because Without that relationship with Yahweh, without knowing him as creator and shepherd, none of those other things are possible. But once you have a relationship with God, that relationship becomes your identity. It's what defines you. It's what makes you, you. It means that you are someone that God made and someone that belongs to him. And you are someone with access to the creator of the universe. It means you are a sheep of the shepherd. You live in his pasture, so to speak. It's what defines you. He is shepherding you. He is overseeing your steps. He is leading you through your dark valleys and your bright mountaintops. He's providing you with the sustenance that you need. That is what Psalm 100 is calling the people of God to know. That at the heart of this missional call to a life of worship and praise and joy and courageous action in faith is a call to a relationship with a shepherd of the sheep. Oh, what grace from our God. And then after this central call, after the heart of this whole thing, comes the second group of three calls, this time with a little bit of a nuanced theme of thanks. And so we just start seeing these same themes again, this time with thankfulness. So the fifth call is one to grateful entrance, just like there was one for joyful entrance. Notice that while verse 2 called for coming into God's presence, the beginning of verse 4 takes it deeper. 
It doesn't just say come into his presence. It says enter his gates. It's using a different word on purpose. Now, do you remember who the object of the call in verse 1 is? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And so this is not just a call to the Israelites to enjoy the presence of God. This psalm is a call to the nations. And that is important when considering what the psalmist means in verse 4 by using the word gates. At the entrance of the temple, there was a gate. There were actually many gates in the temple. But after that main gate, there was an outer courtyard, and Gentiles were invited to enter into that part of the temple complex. And so there's a lot more we could say about that, but what does it mean here in Psalm 100, verse 4, to enter his gates with thanksgiving? It literally means to walk through the temple entrance with a heart of thankfulness for being allowed to participate in a relationship with God, a relationship of worship. And so... Like the second part of verse 2, where it says, come into his presence with singing. Verse 4, the beginning, says to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And friends, understanding the privilege that it is to be allowed into the gates, as it were, of the presence of God leads, or it ought to, without question, to thankfulness. The sixth call kind of builds on this idea of, of approaching God's presence. The sixth call is a call to grateful worship. So grateful entrance and now grateful worship. You see how the beginning of verse 4 speaks of entering into his gates? Well, the second line of verse 4 now talks about his courts. And there is a difference between them in the temple complex. You can certainly take these two phrases as a kind of a parallel and building off of what is being said, because the basic idea is the same, but there's also an important difference between gates and courts. To enter into God's gates with thanksgiving is to, at the temple, to come into the outer section of the temple complex as a thankful invitee into a covenant relationship with God. But to enter his courts with praise is to take it to the next level. You can enter into his gates without entering into his courts. Do you see what I mean? To enter his courts was to go farther into the temple complex. You see, it would be one thing for a Gentile convert to be allowed into the temple complex at all. They were not by nature God's chosen people. They weren't by nature part of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. But it is quite another to be invited into the inner court of the temple. And that's where I see this parallel to the call to joyful worship in verse 2. Because in verse 2, there's this call to serve, which is really a call to a life of worship. And worship is exactly what was happening in the temple. And so to enter his courts with praise was to come into the temple complex with a heart of worship. And in the context of verse 4, there's thankfulness at the beginning, there's thankfulness at the end. I think it makes perfect sense to think that this entering into his courts with praise is also to be done with gratefulness. And so what is to be at the heart of a worshiper of God? Thankfulness. Here's the final call. A call to, or I guess I didn't advance that one, a call to grateful praise. 
Now, you might think that I ought to have labeled call six as a call to praise because of the word praise in verse four, and that would be fine. But when verse four calls worshipers to bless his name at the end there, that's also a call to praise, to praise him, to say, oh, he's awesome. Bless his name. Look at his name. Look at his character. Look at who he is. That's what it is to bless someone's name. Now, I do realize over the last few minutes I've gotten a little bit technical and talking about the temple and talking about this and that and so forth. I hope I'm not losing you because I want you to see the big picture of what I'm saying all this is about. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Here's the big point. The people of God have reason for joy and thankfulness. That's the whole point. And do you know why? Because of what verse 5 is all about. And that's the final element of Psalm 100 that we'll look at. That is the reason. The reason for all these calls is God's character. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. That word for is, is causal. Because God is good, and his steadfast love endures, and his faithfulness endures to all generations. Praise him with joy. Serve him with thankfulness. Worship him with a heart of gladness. Verse 5 speaks of God's goodness, his steadfastness in love, his faithfulness. These are character traits of God listed by the psalmist as the reasons for his call to joyful and thankful worship and praise. And that's really important. You know why? Because it means that our joyful and thankful relationship with Yahweh, this relationship of worship, is rooted in who He is, not in who we are. So you're called to be joyful and thankful, not because of anything about you, but all because of everything about Him. Do you see that? And that makes serving and worshiping and praising with joy and with thankfulness that much easier, if you will, because it's him that we're praising and serving and worshiping. You see, you are, just like I am, fickle, but he is faithful. Your emotions go back and forth. Your flesh still sins, and your body has problems. Your moods will change. Your health is unpredictable. This world is full of pain and suffering. Even the best parts of this world cannot be what you need them to be to keep you happy with real and lasting joy. But God can. Why? Because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. I like to think of it as his being faithfully faithful in faithfulness. It's just this piling on of these concepts of God's faithfulness here. His goodness is faithful. It's in his nature. You remember in Exodus 34 when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, it's as if he says, all right, I'll do that. I'm going to show you my, you remember, goodness, he says. Because God's goodness is at the essence of his nature, and he is faithful in goodness. And his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, his mercy, his saving love, his commitment to the covenant, it endures forever. It's faithful. 
That's why you can sing, and not just in reserved, mumbling monotones, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue, because it's faithful, his mercy. It endures forever. It doesn't change. You can count on it, just like you can count time. The end of verse 5 basically says the same thing. His covenant commitment to his people endures forever. It endures to all generations. It just goes on and on and on forever. He's faithfully faithful in faithfulness. And you know where God's faithfully faithful faithfulness is on clearest display? In the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he is the one whom we are here and here for and all about. Because without Jesus and his gospel work, none of Psalm 100 matters to us today. Without Jesus, why would we, why would we sound a joyful battle cry in praise? Without Jesus, why would we commit to a life of worshipful service and a service of worship? Without Jesus, you and I can't enter into the presence of God. We can't know him relationally. Without Jesus, what have you ultimately got to be thankful for? A nice car? Who cares if you're on your way to hell? A good paying job? What difference does it make in eternity? Nice clothes? A fun vacation, a cool house, a healthy body. It's all empty eternally without Jesus. But with Jesus, my friends, because of Jesus, who he is and what he has done now since he came for us, you and I can enter into the presence of God and not just the gates and not even just the courts, but friends, through Jesus, you can enter into the innermost place, the holiest place, the very presence of God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says it this way. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. My brothers and sisters, when you realize this, when you believe this, when you plug your life into this, do you know what comes? Joy and thankfulness. It's all about Jesus, my friends. It's all about Jesus. And so for literally hundreds of years, Christians have been singing old 100th, as we will in just a moment. But for thousands of years... God's people, going all the way back to Israel, have been singing what this psalm says, that it is a joy to worship God, that a thankful heart is, a res- is the response to being invited into his presence, that God is worthy of praise because of his nature, and that God's people's identity is found in being his. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. Then we're going to all stand together. The musicians can come up when I, when I pray. The men are going to get ready to collect the offering. And as we close our service, we're going to sing Old 100th as we also give of our, of our gifts in the, in the time of the offering. 
And as we sing Old 100th, I invite you, I beckon you to put into practice what Psalm 100 calls for, to make a joyful noise, to shout the victory, to serve him with gladness, to sing with joy and with thankfulness in your heart. So when we sing in just a moment after I pray, lift your voices in praise because God deserves it. Oh Lord, there is so much for us to be thankful for, and there is so much cause for joy. We are sorry for our lack of joy in service and in worship and in our lives, how we live them out in your presence. We're sorry for our many complaints and our discontentment when we have so many reasons for gratitude instead. And so we say, along with the psalmist, many of us, even in moments of trial and pain and uncertainty and suffering, we say by faith, O Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. It is good to praise you. We have joy because of everything that you are and everything that you have done. Lord, give us grace as your people here at Redeemer Bible Church and certainly out in our daily lives to live this out, to be people characterized by joy and not a fake happiness that just pretends things are better to try to act better than everybody else or something but with real joy in our hearts that has come because of our remembering and knowing that you are everything that we need and you have done everything that we need. Help us to that end. Help us even now as we stand together and lift. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.